The amazing Spider-Man had conquered every form of media, except one, movies. Prior to the turn of the century, Spider-Man had appeared in animation, on Underoos, part of the Electric Company, a weird Japanese TV show, and of course, a low-budget network television show in the late 1970s. But in the land of 70mm, surround sound, big box office, nothing. It took an untangling of many complicated copyrights and a filmmaker better known for low-budget horror movies to take Spider-Man from the comic book page to the silver screen. And so, welcome to a ranking. Everyone loves a ranking. I'll be listing my favoured order for all of Spider-Man's cinematic adventures, which was the only criteria. It had to have seen the inside of a projector booth. That meant that the releases cobbled together from the 70s television show were eligible. Obviously, these are my rankings, not yours. My order probably won't jibe with yours. That's part of the fun. One of the enjoyable parts of this is seeing where people agree with you, and, perhaps more importantly, where they don't. As of this recording, there have been 11 cinematic releases for our wall-crawling hero. Three movies, Frankenstein from the Nicholas Hammond-starring TV show, three movies directed by Evil Dead auteur Sam Raimi, two movies directed by the appropriately named Mark Webb, Two entries into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, directed by John Watts, and the animated feature Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Spider-Man has appeared in three other movies in the Marvel range. Captain America Civil War, Avengers Infinity War, and Avengers Endgame. A movie that doesn't have the word war in the title. But as these are not Spider-Man movies, I haven't counted them. Also, none of the movies, even the sainted Into the Spider-Verse, have really got the character 100% right. And even the best movies aren't as good as the best of the comics. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. Coming in at number 11, Spider-Man The Dragon's Challenge. Emily, what happened to your uncle? You can see. What, did he have a heart attack? Leave me alone. But Emily, I... He's an old man who left us. You ran away. No, 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 I ran to get the police, away. Emily. Just go away. I realize how upset you are, but... Give her a break. I didn't know your uncle had a weak heart. You're a coward. You left us to be killed. I never want to see you again. Hey, uh, she, uh, she's just upset. She was scared. Listen, Pete, I have to get a description of that third man from you. The one who got away, I got it from the young lady, but she was so... Pete? Peter? Released in 1981, The Dragon's Challenge isn't a movie at all. Rather, two episodes of the 70s TV show stitched together to make a low-budget feature. Originally entitled The Chinese Web, the story sees J. Jonah Jameson's old friend from China accused of treason back in World War II. Spider-Man and, by extension, Peter Parker head to China to prove his innocence. Now, I know what you're thinking. And you're right. You're thinking, how is this a Spider-Man story? Well, it isn't something that becomes painfully apparent as the film unspools. First off, The Dragon's Challenge doesn't even bother to make some pseudo-film credits, keeping the jazzy TV opening titles and simply changing the interstitial title card. It's symptomatic of the cheap, thrown-together approach of this whole endeavour. Secondly, it's painfully slow. Despite frequent appearances by Spider-Man, the action is subpar, even for a 70s TV show, with a severely underpowered Spider-Man struggling to battle even the tamest of TV lunkheads. There's even a scene where Spider-Man fails to outrun two fat thugs on the subway. 
Spider-Man is treated as just another bland 70s lead. He has none of his comedic personality, no real hang-ups, and even Jonah is far more reasonable than in the comics. It's like the show bled out all the personality of the comics version, watered it down further, and then served it up as cheap TV knockoffs of the Superman movies, even making Peter more of a Clark Kent-type investigative reporter rather than a college student. Other than Jonah, there are no familiar faces from the comics, and as such, it's churlish to criticise this as a film. It's just standard TV fur, probably chosen for the feature film treatment because it's filmed on location. The costume for the show was at least faithful to the comics, in the sense that it really did look like Peter cobbled it together, what with eyepieces that wrinkled the fabric and numerous bad stitching jobs. Notable only for early appearances by Rosalind Chow and Ted Danson, and stuntman Fred Wars, still impressive wall crawling, the Dragon's Challenge doesn't even reach the heights of campy fun. Nicholas Hammond is a decent Peter Parker, but the dull fight choreography, intrusive disco score and snail's pace means this is hard work for anyone other than the most die-hard Spider-Man fans, nostalgia freaks, or especially undemanding children. Number 10. Spider-Man Strikes Back Peter, how do you know that Spider-Man didn't take the plutonium? Well, he just wouldn't do something like that. As a matter of fact, right now he's probably trying to figure out who did do it. If he's not involved, why doesn't he go to the police and prove it? Well, Gail, it's not quite that simple. I mean, think about it. I think Spider-Man does a lot of good, but if people knew who he was, well, it just wouldn't be the same thing. Nobody asked him to save the world. I don't really think he wanted any part of being a superhero. Then all he has to do is turn in his little blue tights. And what about his conscience? What is the point of having some kind of special power if you don't use it to help people? Okay, it could be a tough life. And lonely. How can he ever talk to people? The way we're talking right now. I mean, what kind of a life can he really have? Think about it for a minute. He has to lie to everybody. At work, to his friends. What about girlfriends? How could he ever hope to get married and just have a normal life? People think it would be really wonderful to have Spider-Man's powers. Let me tell you, I'm not so sure whether it's a blessing or a curse. I doubt if he could have put that much better. Released in cinemas in 1978, Strikes Back is another two-part episode of the TV show, in this case The Deadly Dust, stuck together with some new opening credits to make a low-budget and quite unremarkable film, designed to keep the kiddies quiet on a dreary Sunday afternoon. Sadly, it's not even good enough to do that. The storyline sees some kids upset that the college professor has imported some plutonium, steal it, and build a bomb with it, just to prove it could be done. Surely the professor knows what could be done. Of course, Peter Parker is in the same class, and gets involved when he is fingered by the college lecturer as the only student smart enough to be able to build such a device. If I were the students who really committed this crime, I'd be proper pissed off. Sadly, Robert Alder steals the bomb and threatens to kill the president. The action, such as it is, is low-key and rather unimpressive, apart from the legitimately good stunt work, again from Fred Waugh. The story is more akin to a Charlie's Angels episode than something from the comics, and it plods along at a pedestrian pace, unconcerned by such things as pacing, excitement and audience apathy. Michael Pataki is his usual irascible self as Police Chief Barbera and provides some scenery chewing, but the most interesting part of this whole endeavour is the subplot. Joanna Cameron plays a Florida-based reporter, Gail Hoffman, who has been sent to New York, a New York that looks suspiciously like LA, to investigate the relatively new phenomenon known as Spider-Man. Cameron is a spiky foil for Nicholas Hammond's Peter Parker, and her being assigned to Peter, who is believed to know Spider-Man, is a neat comic book-inspired B-story. This means Peter has to keep ditching Gale to become Spider-Man, and whilst it's fun, it's a disservice to the talented and beautiful Cameron that she never figures it out. To its credit, the movie isn't camped up, and is actually played relatively straight by the actors, especially in the nice scenes between Hammond and Cameron, with the latter filling out her white bikini nicely. 
some moments show at least one of the writers may have at least flicked through a comic book at some point with a fine example of Peter Parker look when his camera falls and shatters and there's a humorous fight on a movie backlot at the Excelsior Hotel. By the climax, though, it's degenerated into a car-motorcycle chase that looks like every other LA-based cop drama. Its leaden direction, TV movie plot and poor pacing make this less a strike back and more a strike out. Dum cha If you want to suffer through it, it's available in its entirety on YouTube, sourced from videotape, so there's some wonderful crackles and pops throughout. They were more fun than the film. Number nine, The Amazing Spider-Man. They saw someone climbing up and down the walls. Must be something in the water. Everyone's going crazy. Doctor, a lawyer, now a judge turning crook. The sneak thief and all of his buddies saying they saw a man climbing walls like a spider. I think I'll retire. Robbie, come in here with the galleys, please. And you want to work here? You must be crazy, too. Spider-Man. But he's real. There is someone like that. He, he can climb walls, and he is like a spider. I mean it. There is a Spider-Man? Yes, sir. You're sure? Very sure. I suppose you're going to tell me he caught you with his little web. No, sir, but I did see him. You hear that, Robbie? Mr. Parker here saw a Spider-Man. Isn't that wonderful? Are you on drugs? I did see him. What do you look like? Well, uh, like... like a spider. How many legs do you have? Well, two, of course. He's a man. You just said he was a spider. Spiders have got lots of legs. No, sir, he, he's like a spider. He can do the things a spider does, you know, um, climb walls and, and spin webs, and he's very, very strong. I can step on a spider. Can I step on him? No, sir, I told you, he's not a spider. He's a full-grown man. He's got the strength of a spider, but it's all in proportion to his size. Spiders are very, very strong, you know, so he's thousands of times stronger than you or... or me. You hear all this, Robbie? I mean, do you believe what's going on here? What we thought was a smart kid who had tried to be nice to? Parker, get out of here. All right, Robbie, what have you got? But you've got to believe me, please. I did see him, and, and I can prove it. Well, how, Peter? I took a picture of him. A picture? You have an actual picture? Yes, sir. But why didn't you say so? Well, what does he look like? Oh, uh... Well, um, he, uh, he's... Well, what? What does he wear? What do you mean, what does he wear? Well, you said he climbs up the size of walls, right? Well, then my guess is he's wearing sneakers. <laughs> no, 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 uh, nothing like that. No, he, he, he wears a special costume. A costume? Sure. Well, why not? Uh, would you like to go around with people pointing at you all the time? Hey, there goes that Spider-Man, the freak who climbs walls. I mean, why shouldn't he have the same privacy as you or me? All right, all right. He wears a costume. Now go home and get the picture. Okay, Peter? Get the picture. Sure. Why not? Okay, Robbie, let's go. Uh, I thought we'd start with a two-column lead on this story. Not the film of the same name, but the made-for-TV telefilm that spawned the short-lived TV show. Made in 1977, so just before Superman, and around the same time as The Incredible Hulk, this TV incarnation of Peter Parker, played with youthful exuberance by Nicholas Hammond, isn't that bad. I mean, it isn't good, but by the standards of the time and the limited budget and resources, it has moments of charm. Peter Parker is young and slightly naive, albeit drained of a lot of his personality, hang-ups and problems. Losing Uncle Ben is also a massive misstep. Unlike the series that followed, Aunt May, Jonah and Robbie all make appearances, although again, sans recognisable personality quirks, and some of the special effects are okay for the time, again, especially the practical stunt work. It really does get across the notion of how genuinely creepy someone being able to crawl up a wall and just peer in your window really would be. There's some pretty decent fight scenes with some shots of Spider-Man leaping onto roofs and walls that are still moderately impressive. The plot is bobbins. Some guff about people under the mind control of some wannabe Mysterio robbing banks and being ordered to commit suicide if he's not paid $50 million. But the novelty of seeing Spider-Man in live action earns this its spot in the ranking. 
It's better than the other two movies cobbled together from the show, although that's not really a contest worth winning. But I can see how, shorn of its nostalgic appeal, this may prove tiresome for some viewers. Number 8. Spider-Man 3. He's busy. Oh, no, I'm just here to talk to you, beautiful. What's that smell? That's a little something called nice and easy. What's on you? It's called go away. Get out! That is the dumbest idea you've ever had, and you have had some doozy! Blood pressure. Hey, where are you going? Who are you? You hired him last week. Freelance. I did? What's that smell? It's Brock, sir. Edward Brock, Jr. Wow, can I just say I really like that shirt? Here, it's a crane accident. Check out the light source. He likes my shirt. Hey, Betty. Hey, Pete, you better get in there. New guy. He's trying to sell some Spidey photos. Oh. Thanks. Parker! You're late, maybe too late. Bruckner here, beat you to it. It's Brock, sir. Edward Brock, Jr. I got you this. But he got me this. Wait, how'd you get that? I didn't see there. How'd you get that high? Climbed. Nearly fell off a flagpole. A flagpole? Which one do we use? I like Bernstein's. It's better. Cheaper, too. Congratulations, son. We'll use your shot. I'll pay you 50 bucks. All right, JJ. I'm your man. I know more about what makes a good picture than any photographer in this town. See, photography, it's not just about, no offense, uh, flagpoles or whatever. It's about lighting, composition, drama. I want a staff job, sir. I have a girl that I intend to marry. And uh, I guess, I don't know, I have this stupid little dream of working with one of the greatest newspaper editors of our time, J. Jonah Jameson. Well, we do have an opening. Johnson quit, remember? You fired him. Whatever. Wait a minute. I know it makes a good picture, and I've been here a long time. If there's a staff job, Mr. Jameson, I think I deserve it. He's right, Jonah. Peter's been with us for years. He's done a great job. You want a staff job, and you want a staff job. Anybody care about what I want? I do. Shut up. Get out. I want the public to see Spider-Man for the two-bit criminal he really is. He's a fake. He's full of stick'em. Catch him in the act. Spider-Man with his hand in a cookie jar. Whoever brings me that photo gets a job. Well, what are you waiting for? Chinese New Year? Go, go, go. I'm on it, boss. You'll never get that shot. Oh, we'll see. It's been said that if you want a franchise, it's not the second movie you need to get right. It's the third. See, the theory is, if you are lucky enough to get a third film and you want to keep making them, the third movie has to show the series had legs. So a lot was riding on Spider-Man 3, and there's half a good movie here. Ironically, the half with Venom, which director Sam Raimi didn't even want to do. Had he made a movie about Venom, Eddie Brock and Peter, and weaved the usual Peter Parker screws everything up shenanigans around that, this could have been a contender. Sadly, there's this whole subplot about Sandman, a terrific Thomas Hayden Church, being responsible for Uncle Ben's death and some turgid guff about his wife and daughter that we, quite frankly, couldn't give a shit about. It's a maudlin soap opera that drags the flick down, but no less so than the characterisation of the lead character. As opposed to the comics, where Peter became more outgoing and grown up in his college years, here he's a bigger dork than he was even in the first film. This is merely another of the many weird creative choices, such as making Gwen the model and casting a redhead, Bryce Dallas Howard, to play a blonde, presumably to counteract that they'd already cast the blonde Kirsten Dunst as the red-headed Mary Jane Watson. There are moments where it's almost a worthy sequel to the second movie. Surprisingly, I really enjoyed Topher Grace as Eddie Brock, and he sparks well off the always excellent J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson and Elizabeth Banks as Betty Brant, who seems to be ageing backwards. Even the almost comatose Tobey Maguire seems to come alive in his scenes with Grace, especially in contrast to the risible relationship he has with Dunst's Murray Jane, a cure for insomnia if ever there was one. Like most sequels, this makes the mistake of repeating what worked before, some of Peter's more goofy moments, and then amping them up. Sadly, in Spider-Man 3's case, they cross that line from endearing to annoying. The movie seems to also be confused as to what it's about. Certainly, Peter's hubris plays a part, and when the film is contrasting Peter with Eddie and the various relationship, it fires on all cylinders. 
as it does whenever Raimi is allowed to let his fleur flag fly, such as the scene in the restaurant with Bruce Campbell, or any time Spider-Man gets into a kinetic fight with Sandman. Sadly, there's too much flab around the midsection. If you cut all the reference to Sandman's family, all reference to his involvement with Uncle Ben's death, all of Peter being a goofball, and the horrid dancing stuff, focus purely on Peter, Eddie, Gwen, Murray Jane, Harry and the symbiote, and this is not only a shorter movie, but it's a better one. Ultimately, that's why I rate it lower than The Amazing Spider-Man 2. With the judicious use of scissors, you can make this into a better movie, but its overindulgence is its downfall. I wish Sam Raimi had remembered the lean filmmaker he used to be and brought him out to play. Amazing Spider-Man 2 is no less chock full of odd creative decisions, but the overall bloat in Spider-Man 3 is lacking from the second movie, and the lack of a spark between Peter and Murray Jane makes this sequel harder to enjoy. You could cut 15 to 20 minutes out of this film, and it wouldn't suffer at all. Number 7. The Amazing Spider-Man 2 Good morning, esteemed faculty and families of my fellow graduates. It's an honor to be standing up here today. Hello. Hey, I told you off. I am running a bit late. <laughs> it's over, spiders. Really? <laughs> I know we all think that we're immortal. We're supposed to feel that way. We're graduating. <gasps> But, like our brief four years in high school, what makes life valuable is that it doesn't last forever. What makes it precious is that it ends. And I know that now more than ever. And I say it today of all days to remind us that time is luck. So don't waste it living someone else's life. Make yours count for something. Fight for what matters to you, no matter what. Because even if we fall short, what better way is there to live? Clocking in at a whopping two hours and 21 minutes, Amazing Spider-Man 2 is a flabby mess that squanders excellent visuals, a fantastic cast, and one of the most notorious comic book stories in Spider-Man history. Making the mistake of thinking the audience give a crap about Peter's parents, the script piles incident upon incident in its attempts to make a cinematic universe that ultimately goes nowhere thanks to the film's unmemorable nature. Honestly, how do you make such a forgettable movie about the death of Gwen Stacy? Well, that's because this movie isn't about the death of Gwen Stacy. Gwen's death is stapled onto the end. Because the majority of its runtime, Amazing Spider-Man 2 is far more concerned with setting up future films than it is with what's going on in this film. Harry becoming the Green Goblin in this movie feels equally tacked on. It sure was lucky all that Green Goblin equipment was just lying around so he could show up and kill Gwen at the end, which happens because it's Gwen. What other purpose could she possibly serve other than to die? Well, have you tried not killing her? Rather than arbitrarily bumping her off, surprise us. Let her live. Even Jerry Conway has said that he wouldn't have killed this version of Gwen because this isn't the kind of movie that can come back from killing your leading lady. And certainly not so that we can have a pseudo-uplifting ending like this one. Yes, the actual death scene is beautifully shot, but so what? This Gwen isn't ripe for killing. This isn't the comics. It isn't 1972. And this isn't that Gwen. So don't kill her. Nobody wants to see Emma Stone die in a mainstream superhero movie anyway. And they definitely don't want it only two films into the series. You just haven't earned it yet, baby. All of this is such a shame because the film gets so much else right. Andrew Garfield is arguably the best live-action Spider-Man we've seen on film, quipping, snarking, and generally making a nuisance of himself to criminals and coppers alike. But he's also a genuine, friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man ally to the beat cops and young kids. And in this movie, he has the best live-action costume. He's a charming, 
albeit slightly too handsome and confident Peter Parker, but his relationship with Gwen is delightful, yet shot through with enough Parker angst as to feel comic-like, if not comic-faithful. The problem with this, though, is a fundamental misunderstanding of the character. The minute he has someone to confide in, he's not Peter Parker anymore. He has to bottle all this inside. It makes him who he is. It's a mistake all of the Spider-Man movies and one or two of the comics have made. Sure, Stone and Garfield make the most unconvincing teenagers since the cast of Dawson's Creek, but when it's concentrating on Peter, Gwen and their issues, the film works. After a tedious opening, the next 25 minutes is charming as hell and hugely entertaining. Sadly, Jamie Foxx's Electro is a retread of Jim Curry's The Riddler, a slightly unhinged loser who thinks he's friends with the main character, who is then spurned and turns evil. There's really nothing at all wrong with Fox's performance, and his first fight with Spider-Man in Times Square is really well choreographed, and makes us feel sorry for Max Dillon. But it's an odd take on the character. Rather than build on this, though, the script then introduces Harry Osborn, Peter's best friend ever, not mentioned at all in the first film. Seriously, guys, you knew you were probably doing a trilogy, and it never crossed your mind to at least mention Harry in the previous movie? Casting Dane de Hagendas doesn't help either. He's supposed to be 20 and Peter 18, but Garfield looks at least 10 years older than Dehan. The movie then slows to a snail's crawl, introducing new characters and concepts, one on top of the other. Harry's illness and his taking over of Oscorp, a teasing appearance from Felicia Hardy, Peter's continued investigations into what happened to his parents, rather than, you know, trying to find out who killed Uncle Ben. More villains, more set-offs, no payoffs, and the recycling of beats from the Raimi movies. The Osborne is being screwed out of his company by unscrupulous shareholders plot was done in Spider-Man in 2002. And my God, what is Sony's obsession with a Sinister Six film? Amazing Spider-Man 2 isn't so much a massive misstep as a complete trip over your own shoelaces. Had Sony not been greedy and wanted what Marvel had, they could have had a good series of Spider-Man movies here. For one, the location filming is better here than in any of the other films. Garfield and Stone are wonderful and clearly both want to be there and their back and forth is frothy and fun. The stunt work and action sequences are spectacular, not looking as cartoony as the Raimi flicks. There are also moments that are pure Peter Parker, with Spider-Man screwing up Peter's life and the filmmakers remember that Peter is scientifically inclined. Had they purred down the parents' angle, concentrated on the Harry-Peter-Gwen relationship, this could have been a contender. As it is, it ends up being the textbook definition of what might have been. And if nothing else, I'd have loved to have seen Felicity Jones in a black cat costume. Number six, The Amazing Spider-Man. Captain! The lizard. Look at me, you need to stay with me. Help's on the way, okay? You need to, you need to be gone when they, when they get here, okay? I'm not going anywhere. I was wrong about you, Peter. The city needs you. You're gonna need this. You're gonna make enemies. People will get hurt. Sometimes people closest to you. So I want you to promise me something, okay? Leave Gwen out of it. Promise me that. Huh? You promise me. I knew The Amazing Spider-Man was doomed from my initial viewing. See, there were these two kids in front of me, no more than 12. They had no problem with recasting the role, but the minute Ben Parker showed up, one turned to the other and said, 
I thought he was dead. Even as recently as 2012, the regular public did not know what a reboot was, or alternative versions of the characters. These kids thought that this was Spider-Man 4. Times change. Thanks to the Flash TV show, Into the Spider-Verse and Marvel's movies, Amazing Spider-Man may be better received today. Which is the ironic part, really, as the choice to reboot so soon after the hugely successful Sam Raimi movies was in part its downfall at the time. There are other problems, though, not least the spectre of Raimi. To elude that spectre, the Amazing Spider-Man goes out of its way to not do things the way Raimi did them. But because Raimi did them so well, it can only be a downgrade. It goes contrary to Raimi's look as well. Were his films a mostly colourful pop art explosions, as befits the 60s source material, Webb's films follow the sombre, more grounded visuals of the early 2000s Ultimate comics. It's a valid artistic choice, but in avoiding what Raimi did successfully, they can only make choices that he rejected because they didn't work. For one, when Peter gets bitten by the radioactive spider, it's no big deal. He doesn't try to cash in or get cocky, like in the comics, he just goes on with his life. Sure, he gets his own back on Flash Thompson, but this is where Uncle Ben's words of wisdom are wrong. Flash was a prick. He deserved a little bit of humiliation. Likewise, the actual moment where Ben is killed is botched. For one, the writers seem to go out of their way to avoid him saying, with great power, there must also come great responsibility, which seems like trying to have Batman avoid becoming a bat. Second, the actual death makes Ben out to be really dumb. Here's the scene. Peter is in a corner shop buying a drink. He doesn't have enough money. The cashier is a bit of a jerk to him, but if Peter doesn't have the money, he doesn't have the money. That cashier has to make that till tally at the end of the night, or the difference comes out of his salary. The guy doesn't look flush. He's working in a corner shop, and I can see why he wouldn't want to subsidise Peter. Then the cashier is robbed. Peter does nothing because the cashier was doing his job. Yes, he was being petty. Yes, he was being a bit of a dick. But it was store policy. And I'm willing to bet this kid didn't own the store. Peter was the bigger jerk. Peter even then takes a drink that he couldn't afford to buy that the thief tosses to him before he leaves the store. Peter is now culpable in this crime. That's stolen goods. The thief gets away. He hurts no one. There is no personal connection between he, the cashier, Peter and Peter and Uncle Ben. The thief legs it. Uncle Ben just happens to walk by. He tackles the thief. What the fuck? In the comics, the burglar is robbing his house. Ben's motives for tackling the thief are understandable. He pays the price. The burglar was someone Peter could have stopped, but in his hubris didn't. In the first movie, the thief is robbing Ben's car. Again, a personal attack. In the Ultimate Comics version, which this mimics right down to some of the dialogue, the writer changed the scenario to one similar to here, but the thief still ends up robbing the Parker household, with the same result as the original Lee and Ditko story. In this version, no one expected elderly Uncle Ben to tackle this guy. He's younger and armed. Ben and the cashier should just let him go. Let the police get him. That's their job. The store is insured. And if the store isn't insured, that's their own daft fault. Ben does this for no reason other than to force a connection between what Peter did and Ben's death. It's not heroic, it's stupid. If I see armed robbers coming out of a bank, I get the fuck out of Dodge. It's not the same thing as confronting a thief in my own home, where the law is, at least a little bit, on my side. It's reckless. Ben doesn't die because Peter did nothing. He dies because he, Ben, did something when he should have just stayed out of it. If they wanted to do it differently, they should have had that same thief later rob the Parker household. You know, in the comics, where he's a burglar. Peter would have been justified in feeling guilty then. The botched origin antics continue. Peter makes a costume that looks a little bit like Spider-Man's if you squint a bit, and he sets about trying to find this thief, a subplot that goes nowhere. Peter never finds him here, and in the sequel, he doesn't even bother looking for him anymore. There's no cathartic moment where Peter learns what his hubris has cost him. 
In addition, the overall story to Amazing Spider-Man is very, very boring. Peter's apparently waited 16 years to wonder about his parents and suddenly starts investigating their disappearance. As with Amazing Spider-Man 2, the producers seriously underestimate how much we give a damn about Peter's parents. He learns that Oscorp was involved, but the film can't be bothered casting a Norman Osborn, so that means bugger all in the larger scope of this movie. Kurt Connors is here, but he's not the sympathetic character of the comics, more an obsessed lunatic, and he becomes the lizard whilst researching limb regrowth. And there are even more issues. This Peter Parker uses that he's Spider-Man to get in Gwen's pants. It's all such a waste. Andrew Garfield and Emma Stone are again simply wonderful together. Garfield is a little more mopey than Maguire, but he's great as this Peter Parker, and especially good as Spider-Man. He's skinny, he quips, he has that slightly abrasive edge Spider-Man needs. There are some excellent set pieces, but as with the second film, it's overcooked. There's no reason this couldn't have been Spider-Man 4, with minimal rewriting. Gwen was introduced in Spider-Man 3, throwing a line about MJ leaving because she was fed up of being dropped from buildings, and you're off. Lose all the origin stuff, focus on the lizard, whose alter ego Dr. Kirk Connors was in the last two films, and thus already has a relationship with Peter. Reveal here his heretofore unmentioned connection to Peter's father. Amp up the interpersonal relationships between Gwen, Peter and her father, George Stacy, and her connection to Kurt Connors, and this film could have worked a lot better. Establish that it's the anniversary of Peter's parents' death, and that's why he's suddenly interested in them, rather than it's been a random event. Give Gwen and Peter a romance not based on her discovering he's Spider-Man. Don't kill Captain Stacy straight away. Build up to it! The Amazing Spider-Man is a frustrating film. It squanders a great cast, great visuals, a great score, and sacrifices Spider-Man 4, all because it's in too much of a rush to get to where it wants to be. By all means, recast the expensive Tobey Maguire and Kirsten Dunst, and then just go forward. There's no need to reboot. Sony stood aside and let Raimi's Spider-Man movies die only to have their own hubris bring them down. Clearly, they didn't watch their own films. Number five, Spider-Man Far From Home. I have a plan. Okay, first, I'm gonna sit next to MJ on the flight. Mm -hmm. Second, I'm gonna buy a dual headphone adapter and watch movies with her the whole time. Okay. Three, when we go to Venice, Venice is super famous for making stuff out of glass, right? True. So I'm gonna buy her a black dahlia necklace because her favorite flower is the black dahlia because of, well... The murder. The murder. Four. When we go to Paris, I'm gonna take her to the top of the Eiffel Tower, give her the necklace, oh. and then five, I'm gonna tell her how I feel. And then six, hopefully she tells me she feels the same way. Oh, don't forget step seven. Step seven? Don't do any of that. Why? Because we're gonna be bachelors in Europe, Peter. Ned, look, I may not know much, but I do know this. Europeans love Americans. Really? And more than half of them are women. Okay, sure, but I really like MJ, man, okay? She's awesome, she's super funny in a kind of dark way, and sometimes I catch her looking at me and I feel like I've stood up way too, she's coming over. Just don't say anything. What up, dorks? Excited about the science trip? Hey, uh, yeah, we're just talking about the trip. Yeah, and Peter's plan. You have a plan? I don't, I don't have a plan. For the sequel to Homecoming, Far From Home does something that almost never works. Take Spider-Man out of New York. Of course, this is a very different Peter Parker from the first film, having gone through the blip and been zapped out of existence by Thanos. And yeah, it's not like the second act of the last movie didn't take place in Washington. Far From Home doesn't waste time with the whys and wherefores of the lost time. We are just left to assume that if you have a lead role in this film, they all blipped just like Peter did. Some humour is derived from the fact that Peter's class had to resit all their midterm exams, and we are once again left to ignore if this is now five years in the future, or if all the other movies took place five years in the past. If it's the former, the lack of masks seem to imply we will find a Covid cure in the next five years, which is a comforting thought. The cliffhanger ending of the last film is breezed past. Aunt May not only doesn't seem bothered that Peter is Spider-Man, but actually encourages it. 
which I feel is really odd. A lot of Far From Home is genuinely funny, though, from the movies that the snap generated. The snap by Paul Greengrass is a must-see, to Happy Hogan's burgeoning relationship with May. Sure, it's a travelogue in much the same way as Holiday on the Buses, albeit on a larger budget, but the likeable cast and sitcom situations carry the film for its first third. Once Mysterio arrives, the film ups its game, with some great set pieces and some wonderful moments of comics-inspired lunacy. As in the comics, Mysterio upstages Spider-Man, purporting to be a good guy and undermining the wall crawler, but giving Peter an unlikely confidant in Mysterio's alias, Quentin Beck. It's all a ruse, as Beck is a disgruntled Stark Industries employee, a reveal that worked like gangbusters on the non-comics reading crowd who, like Peter, accepted Jake Gyllenhaal's understated genial friendliness at face value. Hydra Man is an unlikely secondary bad guy, and he's handled just as Sandman should have been handled in Spider-Man 3. A throwaway. Hydra Man's origin even takes the piss out of Sandman's in that latter film. Molten Man is even more throwaway, and the movie is all the better for it, focusing on the relationship between Beck and Peter. The movie suffers by substituting Nick Fury for Tony Stark as the dick adult in Peter's life, but despite the presence of S.H.I.E.L.D.'s number one agent and his right-hand woman, Maria Hill, Far From Home never forgets it's a Spider-Man flick. Tom Holland's naive and endearing take on the character is far more enjoyable than Tobey Maguire's whining nerd or Andrew Garfield's emo skater boy. In many ways, Far From Home is a more successful version of Spider-Man 3. Where Spider-Man 3 split its focus, Far From Home is concentrated. Where Spider-Man 3 was overstuffed with villains, Far From Home has just as many, but treats two of them as mere foils. Where Spider-Man 3 has too many people know Peter's ID, but no one really care, Far From Home has it be a genuine issue that it will come back to bite Peter on the arse. And where Spider-Man 3 was maudlin and cringe, Far From Home is light and funny, despite dealing with typical Spider-Man themes like responsibility, doing the right thing, and how being Spider-Man frequently screws up Peter Parker's life. Number 4. Spider-Man 2 It's all over town, Robbie. Gossip, rumours, panic in the streets. We're lucky. Crazy scientist turns himself into some kind of a monster. Four mechanical arms welded right onto his body. Guy named Otto Octavius winds up with eight limbs. What are the odds? Hoffman! Yeah. What are we going to call this guy? Uh, uh, Dr. Octopus. That's crap. Uh, uh, Science Squid? Crap. Dr. Strange. That's pretty good. But it's taken. Wait, wait, I got it. Dr. Octopus. Uh, but, uh, I like it. Of course you do. Dr. Octopus. New villain in town. Doc Ock. Genius. What, are you looking for a raise? Get out. Chief, I found Parker. Where you been? Looking for you all morning. Why don't you pay your phone bill? Mad scientist goes berserk and we don't have pictures. I heard Spider-Man was there. Where were you? Photographing squirrels? You're fired. Chief, the planetarium party. Oh, right. You're unfired. I need you. Come here. What do you know about high society? Oh, uh, well, I... Yeah, don't answer that. My society photographer got hit in the head by a polo ball. You're all I got. Big party for an American hero. My son, the astronaut. Could you pay me in advance? <laughs> With Spider-Man 2, Sam Raimi leaped fully into the John Romita era of the comics, rather than the earlier Steve Ditko comics of the first film, even though that movie still had a sprinkling of Romita. In this film, Pete has two jobs, lives in a crappy apartment, still lusts after Murray Jane, even though he made a choice to be Spider-Man in the last movie, and still attends Empire State University. His teacher, Dr. Kirk Connors, thinks Peter is brilliant but lazy, and this doesn't prevent him from recommending Peter to Dr. Otto Octavius, who, coincidentally, is also working with Oscor, now under the management of Harry, after Norman Osborn's death. The connection between Ock and Peter is a nice addition, and in Alfred Molina has one of the best cast villains in superhero movies to that point. There's a lovely line in understated humour throughout the film that few of these kinds of films manage, and the various different plot threads are juggled nicely. There's a feeling that these people have been living their lives since we last saw them. Harry is outwardly more confident and settled. MJ has met someone new. Only Peter seems stuck in a rut. The writers crib wonderfully from the comics, particularly Spider-Man No More from Amazing Spider-Man issue 50, published in 1967. 
characterization is whip smart, with Octavius being quite arrogant and cocksure, despite being likeable and endearing before his accident. I'm not sure why he has to have a wife just to kill her off, though. Trivia. One of the scientists is played by Daniel Day Kim, who also played pretty much the same role in Ang Lee's Hulk movie. The Daniel Day Kim cinematic universe starts here. For this film, Raimi lets his horror flag fly, with his constantly moving camera evoking his earlier Evil Dead movies. Ox Rebirth is quite chilling for a PG-13. Peter subconsciously losing his powers is daft, but it was daft when Stan Lee did it back in Amazing Spider-Man Annual 1, so at least it's consistently stupid. There's even a hint that Robbie suspects Peter of being Spider-Man, another nice touch torn from the comic's pages. Mary Jane is still a simpering whiner. Peter borders on being too much of a doormat, but Spider-Man 2 is brimming with superior set pieces, smart humour and action. Objectively, it may be the most faithful and best Spider-Man movie yet. Number 3. Spider-Man Homecoming What are you going to do, Pete? What? When you graduate, what do you think you're going to do? Oh, um, I, don't, I don't know. Don't grill him, Dad. Just saying, you know, all you guys who go to that school, you pretty much have your life planned out, right? Yeah, no, I, I'm just a sophomore. Peter has an internship with Tony Stark, so I think he doesn't have to worry. Really? Mm-hmm. Stark. So cool. What do you do? Actually, I don't intern for him anymore. Seriously? Yeah, it got, um, boring. It was boring? You got to hang out with Spider-Man. Really? Spider-Man? Wow. What's he like? Yeah, he's nice. Nice man. Solid dude. Hmm. Look, so cute. Oh. I've seen you around, right, man? I mean, I mean, somewhere we've, uh, have we ever, because of even the voice of... Um, he does academic decathlon with me. Oh. Uh. And he's at my party. Ah. It was a great party. Really great. Yeah. Beautiful house. A lot of windows. <laughs> you were there for like two seconds. That was, I was there longer than two seconds. You disappeared. No. No, I did not disappear. Yes, you did. You disappeared like you always do, like you did in DC, too. Terrible what happened down there in DC, though. Were you scared? I bet you're glad when your old pal Spider-Man showed up in the elevator, though. Yeah, well, I, I, I actually didn't go up. I, I saw it off on the ground. Very lucky that he was there that day. Good old Spider-Man. Squeezing Spider-Man into the Marvel Cinematic Universe so late in the game was a challenge. Arguably, Spider-Man needed the MCU more than the MCU needed Spider-Man, which was fine. Spider-Man's always been the underdog, and it's not like Spider-Man was the first Marvel superhero. The Fantastic Four, the Hulk, and I, I think Thor all predate him. What Marvel did here, though, was something quite interesting. They introduced him in another movie, Captain America Civil War wet the appetite of the viewer, give them a tease before unleashing him fully formed into the world. And what a perfect, fully formed specimen he was. In Tom Holland, the casting conglomerate at Marvel found the perfect 21st century Peter Parker. Goofy, somewhat awkward, but still possessing amazing acrobatic skills, wonderfully utilising Holland's real-life talents as a dancer. Some have called him Iron Man Jr., but so what? Iron Man was the figurehead of the MCU. There's enough of Peter Parker here to be recognisable, although Holland doesn't seem quite capable of bringing out the more unlikable side of Peter, a side effect of casting such a charming actor. Once again, the producers go out of their way to try to avoid repeating Raimi, this time shamelessly ripping off the Miles Morales comics rather than the Peter Parker ones. 
This for me is the only real misstep of the film. Giving Peter a confidant in Ned Leeds, Ganke by any other name, makes him a different person than the comic's forebear. It's not necessarily a bad different per se, but so much of Peter's angst is wrapped up in his secret life that when you remove that, there's not really a lot for him to be angsty about. Totally, that plays into the movie quite well, as it's clear from the start, an endearing scene of Peter being used rather callously by Tony Stark and Happy Hogan, that this will be a bouncy affair, less mopey than the Garfield movies. This is driven home by Michael Giacano's wonderful score. It's easy to overanalyse this film. There are too many changes to canon. It's not Peter Parker to have him so idolised Tony Stark. Where the hell is Uncle Ben? All valid criticisms in their own way, but the nitpicking ignores that Spider-Man Homecoming is simply a lot of fun. It's an enjoyable romp of a movie, featuring pleasing characters, nice set pieces, a pretty wonderful twist involving Michael Keaton's The Vulture, and some great visuals. With a more laid-back Peter Parker, it's left to Tony Stark to be the dick. But he's good at that, so let him play to his strengths. And it's not like there aren't any moments of pure Peter Parker fan service. His ignoring of Tony and going it alone is totally within Peter's character. Someone who's always had problems with authority figures telling him what to do. Zendaya, likewise, isn't quite the MJ of the comics, which is a real shame as she has enough charisma to certainly pull that off. And if there is anyone alive who currently is MJ in real life, it's Zendaya. Sadly, the writers stuck her with the typical too-cool-for-school characterization that she nevertheless pulls off through sheer force of will. In The Vulture and Michael Keaton, the film has the best on-screen villain Spider-Man has faced so far. Yes, even better than Doctor Octopus. Simply because of his relationship to Peter. He's his girlfriend's father, a totally on-point Spider-Man moment, if ever there was one. The scene in the car between the two of them pisses all over the similar scene between Spidey and the Goblin in the 2002 film. It's also replete with subtext and subtlety. Far more than other, more worthy but dull movies whose fans would dismiss this just because it's an MCU movie. Should Peter perhaps have seen Uncle Ben or Aunt May in the climactic, ripped-from-the-pages moment? Sure. Tony Stark's important is overplayed, but at this point the audience has that same connection with him that Peter has, so it works in context. Overall though, Homecoming is a resounding success, obliterating the flawed Matt Webb movies from the memory and firmly ensconcing Spider-Man in the MCU for the considerable future. Number 2. Spider-Man Remember, with great power comes great responsibility. Director Sam Raimi's Spider-Man took the ultimate spin into movie theatres in 2002, after years of internal politics and rights problems. That it is as good as it is, is nothing short of miraculous. Sure, it's a strange movie nowadays, coming at a time just after the tedious X-Men movie showed us we should be embarrassed by the comics, and just before the Marvel Studios movie showed us that the comics are actually worthwhile and entertaining. It's a throwback. It has none of the magic realism of the Marvel movies, but it doesn't have that dismissive feel of the X-Men. It's kind of off on its own, which may be for the best. It's colourful, theatrical, melodramatic, campy, heartfelt, silly, exciting and bold. In other words, it's a legitimate comic book movie. It has a lot more in common with Joel Schumacher's Batman movies than it does Tim Burton's, and yet here that's a strength. Raimi's movies are hyperkinetic, not based at all in the real world, even when he tries grounding Spider-Man in a recognisable, albeit cartoonified, world. For the most part, Raimi pulls it off. I have some issues with the casting. Tobey Maguire has none of the spikiness of the lead Ditko strips. Kirsten Dunst is woeful as Mary Jane Watson. But the film carries us over that by giving us a Spider-Man movie that still stands up as a towering achievement. Like 1978's Superman and 2005's Batman Begins, it may be the definitive celluloid statement on the character's origin. There are trips along the way. The scene where Spider-Man and the Green Goblin talk what's both masked looks incredibly daft. 
This is largely because Willem Dafoe's mouth, which is visible, doesn't seem to be matching the dialogue his character is saying. And Spider-Man's chin isn't moving at all, so he doesn't seem to be conversing in any way. Macy Gray's appearance is also a head-scratcher now. Imagine if Boney M had shown up in Superman. It starts the silly notion of ending a Spider-Man film with a funeral, and let's not harp on again about how dumb organic webbing is. However, there's a naivete to Spider-Man, a joyous revelling in its own mythology that just makes it enjoyable to watch. Danny Elfman's score remembers John Barry's maxim, play the theme. The visuals still hold up, for the most part, and there's a palpable joy in seeing Spider-Man thwip his way across the New York skyline. Objectively, Spider-Man may not be as good a film as Spider-Man 2, but it's a lot more fun. Number one, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. My name is Peter Parker. I was bitten by a radioactive spider. And for 10 years, I've been the one and only Spider-Man. I'm pretty sure you know the rest. With great power comes great responsibility. I saved a bunch of people, fall in love, saved the city. And then I saved the city again. And again and again and again. And I did, uh, I did this. We don't really talk about this. Look, I'm a comic book, I'm a serial, did a Christmas album, I have an excellent theme song, and uh, a so-so popsicle. I mean, I've looked worse, but after everything, I still love being Spider-Man. I mean, who wouldn't? So no matter how many hits I take, I always find a way to come back. Because the only thing standing between this city and oblivion is me. There's only one Spider-Man. And you're looking at him. It's rare that a comic-inspired superhero movie improves upon the source material. Some look down on the fact that they are even comics at all. Others revel in it, embrace it, and take it with just the right amount of seriousness. Others still just send it up. Others still are pretentious messes. But improve? That's raw. Welcome to something raw. Into the Spider-Verse takes the rather silly notion of multiple Spider-Man, something that was arguably the domain of DC Comics rather than Marvel, and makes it work. It takes Miles Morales, a character that only existed to assuage Brian Michael Bendis' guilt that he hadn't race-swapped Peter Parker when he had the opportunity, and makes him a vibrant, real and wonderful character. In the comics, Miles was Peter. Same origin, same setup. He only came alive when Peter's supporting cast were involved. He was adjunct to Peter in every way. That's not equality. In the movie, Miles is his own person. He has a personality, quirks, flaws. His supporting cast are for him, not reheated from Peter Parker. His background and family are integral to the story, and the character, his culture and his upbringing are something rarely seen in a movie of this type. In short, he's a fully fleshed out character. And he's brilliant. Voiced with charm to spur by Shami Moore, Miles emerges from this movie as a genuine and wholly enjoyable character who we want to spend more time with. However, not content with pulling off this miracle, Into the Spider-Verse takes Spider-Gwen, a concept I have no time for, and makes that work as well! And then it takes two different versions of Peter Parker, the successful superhero married to the supermodel and the slacker 20-something who let his life go to pot, and it makes them work. And it kills Peter Parker, and that works! I was not ready for this animated flick to kill Peter Parker and do it better than the live-action deaths of Gwen Stacy or Harry Osborn. And that's before we talk about the animation, which was sublime. Back in the day, comics used the old four-colour printing process for publishing their comics, which resulted in them being made up of lots and lots of little dots. Into the Spider-Verse uses these dots in its animation, and it uses captions, thought bubbles, panel layouts. It is literally a comic brought magnificently to life. Everything about this movie works. The character designs are sublime. Yes, 
even the kingpin. The animation, which changes depending on the scene, the moment or the character is some of the best ever seen. The story beats are beautiful. And just when you think it can't pull off any more miracles, it has Spider-Ham and Nicolas Cage as Spider-Man Noir. Let me say that again. It has Spider-Ham and Nicolas Cage as Spider-Man Noir. And makes them work! It's hard to describe just how good Into the Spider-Verse is without sounding hyperbolic or making it sound so good that people who haven't seen it will want to watch it. There is a danger of praising something so much people get bored of hearing about it. And Into the Spider-Verse probably falls into that category. But that's because it is that good. It's the best theatrically released Spider-Man movie by Miles. So, what have we learned? Well, we've learned that none of the major theatrically released Spider-Man movies are as objectively bad as Superman 4, Batman and Robin, or Supergirl. We've learned that Spider-Man, like James Bond, has achieved that level of pop culture prominence that the audience will accept recasting without the blink of an eye. And we've learned that the hero that could be you still resonates with kids, with adults, with ardent fans and with casual audiences. There's no reason to believe the Spider-Man films are going anywhere. He's been a constant movie screen presence now for two decades. Been played by three actors, had eight solo movies and three cameos in that time. However, none of them are the comics. The comics can do things films can't. And I'm not just talking about special effects. The comics allow Peter time to develop, to change, to grow. They allow him to be an unlikable character sometimes. The films won't take that risk. The comics show Peter internalising his angst, compounding his problems. He's his own worst enemy. None of the films have really got that right. Not really. And you know what? That's okay. Maybe they shouldn't try to be the comics. They're not comics. The films. Let the comics be the comics. And let the films be the films. It's probably easy to enjoy them that way. It's Fade Out. Hosted by film fanatic Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, Fade Out will examine the final films of Hollywood's brightest lights, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Okay. Sorry, that took a little bit longer than I'd I anticipated, than I had anticipated. The, um... The renovations to the palace took a little bit longer. Doctor Doom wanted ramparts. He hadn't got planning permission. It was a whole thing. Tyne Daly showed up. You know what it's like. Anyway, we're back for now. We'll see how long it lasts before we start doing other stuff to the house. Um, so let's look at the email, of which there was a whole one while I was away. Daniel Doherty has emailed in. Hi, Daniel. Hello, Andy. Remember last year when I said I would try to write on a more regular basis? Yeah, I've not really done that, have I? I am a very naughty boy. In my defence, I could state that because of everything that's going on, my workload has doubled and I don't have the time to write as many emails as I'd like. But I think it has more to do with the fact that I'm a lazy bugger and I get easily distracted. Ooh, shiny. Anyway, congratulations on covering the entire original Stan Lee run. Listening to you talk about Spider-Man comics is surprisingly soothing and reassuring, especially during these uncertain times. You really are the British Bob Ross of Spider-Man podcasters. <laughs> t-shirt! I've been that on a t-shirt. Your Lee Ditko episodes are some of my favourites and I go back and listen to them at least once a year. It makes me so happy that you carried on with Untold Tales and the Lee Romita issues. I was blown away by the fact that we're both on the exact same page regarding Amazing Spider-Man 103 and 104. Spider-Man really doesn't belong in the Savage Land battling dinosaurs, Gog and Quicksand. The only jungle he should ever be seen swinging through is the concrete jungle of New York. But if you swapped out Gwen Stacy for Murray Jane and maybe condensed this two-parter into a done-in-one, it may have made for a goofy, fun issue of Marvel Team-Up. That's actually quite a good point. I wonder if it was a tryout for Team-Up. Because it was just before Team Up debuted that, wasn't it? Which I believe Roy Thomas was the writer on to begin with. Hmm, interesting point. I have nothing to back that up, it's just a theory. 
On a side note, prior to a portrayal in Ultimate Spider-Man, the only time we saw Gwen Stacy show that much skin was in the infamous self-portrait John Romita Sr. drew of himself, surrounded by Spider-Man and his cast of characters. Gwen was depicted wearing a belly shirt and hip-hugging bell-bottom jeans. Well, Daniel, you've obviously never seen Norman Osborn's leaked sex tape. <laughs> I'm kidding, there's no such thing. At least I hope there's no. I also enjoyed your week-long coverage of Denny O'Neill's Spider-Man run. I've already said my piece about the rumour that Denny might not have written most of these stories himself, but I still haven't found any corroboration. While I'm a little surprised you decided to cover Michalini McFarlane before Roger Stone, I understand your reasoning. And to be perfectly honest, I've been chomping at the bit to hear you tackle the McFarlane run, so this way I don't have to wait. That's all for now. Until next time, cheers. Sincerely, Dan Doherty, former logover of the Stupid Ape Society of Yancey Street. Had to get that in somewhere one last time. P.S. To answer your question from the Batman Forever episode, it's the comic book adaptation of Batman and Robin that begins with the movie crew shooting a scene from the movie, not the Batman Forever adaptation. I know this because I not only have the prestige format bookshelf editions, but the super rare Batman the Movies trade paperback from 1997 as well. Well, I'm glad to have it on my back bookshelf. The scratchy Bill Sinkevich cover leaves much to be desired does your back bookshelf shift to the left when you lift open a bust of shakespeare and flick a switch to reveal two back poles behind because that would be cool if that was the case any road up thank you for joining me for this it was nice to be back after a long enforced hiatus uh you can email me on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com for now that may change uh, if you know we ever get a new website um and if you feel like dropping me a message with your ranking or will you agree or disagree please let me know remember what i said though rankings are like assholes everybody's got one and they're all different hopefully anyway see you real soon everything's gonna be fine take care bye bye Spider-Man does whatever a spider can. Spins a web any size. Catches speed just like flies. Hey there, here comes that Spider-Man. Is he strong? Listen, bud. He's got radioactive blood. Can he swing from a thread? Take a look overhead. Hey there, here goes that Spider Man. Yeah. In the 